Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by The Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Okay, well, go ahead and turn to uh, Psalm 17. Psalm 17. And let's take the time to read it. Uh, So, the ancient um, inscription says it's a prayer of David. And it says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. There's a good uh, thing to purpose, isn't it? (laughs) Concerning the works of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Uphold my steps in your paths, that my footsteps may not slip. Oh, there's another great memory verse right there. Uphold my steps in your paths, that my footsteps may not slip. That'd be a good one for a hiker too, wouldn't it? (laughs) Okay, or a mountain climber. (laughs) Verse 6, I have called upon you, for you will hear me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. If you've got another translation, it might say steadfast love there. Or it might say uh, faithful love, it might say grace, it might say mercy. It's the great word kased that we'll talk about in a little bit. One of uh, the elders back up in uh, Waynesboro reminded me, he sent me and said, I remember you talking about that word. Can you share a little bit more about it again? So I said, yeah, I just finished getting ready for Sunday night. And I sent it to him about that. And he's going to share that with a grief group that he's in now that his wife has died. But verse 7, show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand, O you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who surround me. They have closed up their fat hearts. <laughs> With their mouths they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes, crouching down to the earth, as a lion is eager to tear his prey. Sounds like my cat going after birds and varmints and stuff. And like a young lion lurking in secret places. Arise, O Lord, confront him, cast him down. Deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. With your hand from men, O Lord, from men of this world who have their portion in this life, and whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure. I think he's talking ironically there. They are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their position for their babes. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. That's a great verse there at the end that speaks of future hope. And so Psalm 17, really nice psalm. I so enjoyed studying this this week to bring it out here this Sunday night. Even though many of the psalms are prayers or include prayers, there are only five that say they are prayers in their ancient title, and this is the first. And so the five psalms that are declared prayers in their titles are 17, 86, 90, 102, and 142. This is the first one. So the first, we've got something new again with this psalm. As you go through, you get to the first one, and this is the first one that's explicitly declared to be a prayer. Now, folks, Hebrew can be very difficult to understand by the best of scholars. And that's especially true when you get to Hebrew poetry like the Psalms. And now that more people are used to reading multiple translations, they're seeing more of that in how verses are translated. So as I read that, if you had another translation, it, it half a verse might have sounded very different than what I read. And I'm going to tell you just a little bit about that right now. Um, and I want to show you one of the reasons that is. So tell me what the following says in English. Do you see it there in your notes? It starts with a Y, ends with a K. What, 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 is that, um, what does that say? <laughs> Let me give you a hint. Let me give you a hint. We're, we're talking about Hebrew, so even though I've given you English consonants, uh, read it from right to left. Got it? Anybody got it? Yeah, that's clear. <laughs> okay, no, no one got it, huh? Okay, here's another hint. It's not just one word. The original Hebrew leaves out any spacing between words to save ancient paper. So 
Okay, so now you, you know you got a whole bunch of continents strung, consonants strung together there, uh, and the spaces aren't there, but supply them in your mind. Can you figure out what it says? Okay, last hint. The original Hebrew also didn't have vowels in it. Vowel points were added later by scribes to help underst understanding the meaning. So now go to the word groupings on the bottom of the page and uh, see if you can read it there from the bottom of the page. What is it? What is it, Vicki? Keep me, well, keep me what? Keep me as the apple of your eye. So that's in verse 8, right? Now, listen, here's what's interesting. We're going to see this apple of the eye phrase uh, more times in the Psalms, and I think it's in Proverbs a little bit too, but depending on how you put the Hebrew words together, it could read little man instead of apple. Keep me as the little man in your eye. Okay, we've got parents here and grandparents, friends and aunts and uncles and grandparents and stuff like that. Uh, have you ever held your child and you've seen your reflection in their eye? Have you ever wondered, what's this about keeping us being kept as the apple of God's eye or something like that? Well, apples are cool and they love their apples and stuff. But it may be instead, as you put the words together with the vowels and things like that, it could have been a little man instead. In other words, God, keep me as close to you as a parent holding their child who sees their reflection in the child's eyes. And in fact, another time that word, word grouping appears, it um, says, uh, keep God's commands as the apple of your eye. But if you do it that way, it's keep God's commands like the little man in your eye. So he's saying, I love the Lord. I love God's word. Son, that's what I want for you too. Daughter, that's what I want for you too. Which is pretty neat, isn't it? So anyway, these are some of the things that happen. And I'm telling you, if you found the oldest Hebrew Bible you could find, you wouldn't have anything but those continents going from right to left, right next to each other, all in capital letters, no spacing, no vowel points and all that. Is that the way you learned Hebrew, Pastor Danny? No. The way they teach it now is they put the spaces in, they put the vowel points in, all those different things. And so most Hebrew uh, uh, words go around two to three continents, cons cons continents, consonants. <laughs> and uh, you have those when you look at the 22-letter uh, Hebrew alphabet. Uh, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, Hey, Wah, you know, and they put vowel points in as they go uh, so that you can uh, read, read it. So you see YH, uh, YHW, but you put in the vowel points to get Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Pretty cool. Anyway, so in Psalm 17, you have an agitated David praying to God for relief. So we've seen some trouble and trust psalms, uh, but this doesn't quite fit neatly into that category because of the beautiful things that happen throughout this psalm. David needs protection from his enemies. He believes he's in the right and his enemies are in the wrong. And he's laying that case out to God, the only judge that matters. He wants to see his enemies punished. He loves God and is pleading for God's love to meet him right now in his moment of need. He ends his prayer with a beautiful acknowledgement that in the future everything will be okay when he's with God forever. Now let me ask you a question. What characterizes your speech to God or even to a friend when you're agitated about something? So if, if we can go with prayer, but go with just when you're agitated about something and talking to a friend or your spouse or something. What, what characterizes that speech? Volume. Volume. <laughs> it can be volume, right? Yeah, you feel a little heated sometimes. You're so passionate about uh, saying that you're right and the other person's wrong that you're dealing with or whatever and stuff like that. Well, what else? That's a good one. Well, yeah, a lot of self-focus, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, so you get that word me or I in there a whole lot. You know, uh, I haven't done anything wrong, you know. <laughs> uh, good. Anything else? You tend to be a little more, um, I don't know what the right word is, but you like to find fault with the other person. 
Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 That's right. So you not only want to point out that you're right, you want to point out that the other person's wrong and stuff. Um, and all those are great responses. I know one of the things that characterizes me, and I've heard this when agitated people talk to me, they tend to also, we tend to also repeat ourselves, right? So we go, we circle back to a point. So we make a point, we start another point, and then we're thinking, okay, I got something else to say about that first thing, and we bring it back in. And because that seems to be how David is, as this wonderful prayer has been given to us in the pages of Scripture, and I'm so glad this, the, so many of the Psalms are just raw like that, you know, raw prayers of the saints that teach us it's okay for us to pray uh, what's on our heart to God. He's big enough to handle it. We're telling everybody else. We might as well tell Him. But uh, many times we tend, we tend to circle back and add in more, and, and you have that. Uh, there's, there's several things going on here in this Psalm, and David goes back to things, and we do that when we're agitated and talking. Oh yeah, one more thing about that. Oh, one more thing about this that I was talking about. And so that makes this an exceptionally difficult um, psalm to outline. So it, some of the, the Hebrew writing itself is hard to bring out from scholars, and then it's also hard for uh, whatever language you're using then to outline it. And I've given you uh, my best shot that we're going to go through in a minute, but so glad for the honesty in the psalms. It's so relatable to our own experience. Now one thing I love about this psalm is how it personalizes God through several of what we call anthropomorphisms which is relatable yet ideal human characteristics. So uh, in this psalm, God is visualized with ears. In his pure essence, God doesn't have no ears, you know, but he's pictured as, please incline your ear, O Lord, right? Uh, a face, eyes, hand, uh, a sword, a body, and also beyond anthropomorphisms, having wings like a mother chick that you could take uh, refuge under, you know, in a time of crisis, like a baby chick and stuff like that. So David's using these things to uh, visualize. So let's try to outline it and go through it. So the first six verses... Please hear your servant's prayer, O Lord. Look at the strong words he uses to try to get God's attention in verses 1 and 2. Hear, attend, give ear, let come from your presence. Let your eyes look on this upside-down situation and make it upright. So he wants to have, have God's ear. He wants to be in God's presence. He wants to have God's eyes looking on this situation in case they're looking away. Pretty powerful. Now, verse 2, let my indication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. So he's not claiming to be sinless here. He's pointing out to God a situation involving him that is unjust and asking God to right it. Now, we should do the same when we experience uh, hurtful and unjust things. There, there may be something God calls us to do, but first pray. You know, we see something like uh, uh, a shooting or something, and people say, well, I'm praying about that. And sometimes we get jumped on and saying, well, we don't need just prayers. We need to give all government power to the left, and that'll solve all the problems and stuff, you know. Uh, but no, it is very appropriate, at least at the beginning of something, to pray, you know. And God may call to specific actions, but I love this John Bunyan quote I put in your notes here. I think I've given it to you a couple times uh, lately, but you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. And I don't know that that's how, you know, one of the great things about getting older is you slow down enough to pray. <laughs> I mean, in principle, uh, as a saved 17-year-old, I started praying and I believed in prayer. Same was true in my 20s as a single guy trying to serve Jesus and as a young married guy and a youth pastor and then a pastor. But one of the great things about slowing down more and more uh, is that a lot of that time now goes into the kind of prayer life I wish I'd had a richer one of all along, you know. And there are some exemplary stories of young people praying. I think of David Brainerd, who died at 29, had an exemplary prayer life and stuff. Um, but uh, what a great quote from John Bunyan. You cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Look again at verse 2. Let my vindication come for your, from your presence. So before we take matters into our own hands, before we act rashly in a vengeful way, take it to the Lord in prayer. And then verse 3. Um, apparently David is recounting that he has already prayed to God, and so he's praying again, but he says, Lord, you have tested my heart. Uh, you have visited me in the night. You've tried me. And I like this. This situation was the kind of situation that had kept David up at night. <laughs> now, 
Uh, have you had anything that keeps you up at night wondering about it, a relationship or um, a situation, and you, you know, maybe involving your children or grandchildren? Well, then, Gary's been, <laughs> had one last night like that, you know. Um, and uh, during that time, David was up at night, um, and when it kept him up, he had meditated on whether he was in the right or wrong. So, um, you know, they tell you that if you're having trouble sleeping, don't uh, count sheep, talk to the shepherd. And I've certainly found that to be true. You know, I start praying about something and it gives me peace and I can go back to sleep as I pray. Uh, don't uh, always get in the best, richest prayer during that time. But sometimes you just have to get up. You have to go sit somewhere and pray all the more. And David seems to be describing a situation like that. And if we're in Psalm 17. Turn over to Psalm 19, just two away, because... David seems to be talking about how he had poured his situation out to the Lord, and he was specifically looking for ways he might be in the wrong. And I so appreciate uh, a text I got today. Uh, somebody that has been wronged by another um, was talking about how lately, uh, in response to some of the things we've been preaching, they were able to identify some specific ways and things that they could do and need to do going forward. Uh, and yet, you know, truly, um, and so David in some ways is the victim of some aggressor here, but he's also made sure that he prayed to make sure he was in the, really in the right before God, because at the end of the day, that's all that matters, right? Against you, you only have I sinned. So look at Psalm 19, 14. The psalmist, after that wonderful psalm that we'll get to in a couple weeks, says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. So sometimes we are in the wrong. Sometimes we need to have God confirm for us that uh, you know, we do need to change something. We do need to act on something. And I like that David had that heart. You've tested my heart. Let God test your heart. Ask God to visit you whenever, and in the night's okay too, and to try you. So as David had meditated on his situation, he knows he has God's peace, that he has acted as a believer in this situation, and his enemies are in the wrong, biblically speaking. Now, according to the end of verse 3, so you're looking at the end of verse 3, what had David purposed he would not do in this conflict? That's, that's, uh, yep, that's um, in there, but specifically in what way? What does it say at the end of verse 3? Yeah, so uh, you're right, uh, Donnie. We're going to get to that too, but um, specifically verse 3, he says, I purpose that I would not transgress with my lips. Um, many times we're in the right, but sin with our speech through gossip, slander, unnecessary repeating something we should not do, and does it ever make situations better <laughs> to have more people in the loop than the person you need to talk to and get things right with? Not generally. Generally, it makes things worse when there's gossip or slander or unnecessary repeating of stuff. And, uh, you know, I've become more sensitive lately to people even sharing true information, but it's not edifying in any way, you know. Um, and it may be something that uh, it, it really uh, was shared uh, through a motivation to just have something to say that was a tad, uh, you know, salacious or would get somebody uh, going or something like that, you know. And I want to be careful about those things myself. And we do know that sins of the mouth rip apart families. They rip apart churches, communities, cities, states, nations, and work between countries even, you know. Uh, so it's good to talk. I love how Jesus just laid it out in Matthew 18. Um, you know, if your brother has sinned against you, go talk to him one-on-one. -on -one. And probably 90% or more of things get worked out just by doing that, right? The problem is we don't, do we? We tell our hairdresser, we tell our uh, co-teachers co there, we tell our, uh, you know, uh, aunt and uncle, we tell uh, the UPS guy when he comes by, <laughs> hey, you got a minute? No, I don't. I'm going to be home by midnight. Well, I don't need to tell you about something that's going on, <laughs> all those things. Um, but uh, according to verse 4, whose paths had David kept away from? The end of verse 4. The pass of the violent. And uh, the translation here reads destroyer. He had kept away from the pass of the destroyer. People can be destroyers, even though our battle's not against flesh and blood. Uh, you know, you can kind of know, man, if I run with that person, the Bible says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So it is very important, you know, to keep away from 
uh, folks that are inclined to do no good. Uh, Proverbs has some great words about that. Um, but um, I think of many of the Proverbs, but also John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's Satan's job description. Jesus said, I have come. They might have life and might have it to the full, right? Abundant life. Um, so what this all means is that in addition to vindicative, uh, vindicative words, David had avoided vindicative actions. David is leaving vengeance unto the Lord. And uh, so our brothers and sisters in Christ are never our enemies, but there's a lot of wisdom here we can apply to others we find ourselves disagreeing with in the body of Christ. Uh, be careful with our mouths and be careful with our actions. So make sure we're praying about stuff. Don't complicate a situation through uh, unnecessary and sinful words that tear down rather than build up. And also any actions that would sabotage ongoing relationship. You know, uh, this is just good stuff also um, for, uh, you know, uh, just life in general. You know, be bridge builders instead of bridge burners, right? Because uh, you never know when you have to go back over a bridge. Verse 5 is a verse you might want to memorize. Isn't it beautiful? Uphold my steps in your paths, Lord, that my footsteps may not slip. A simple verse, Psalm 17, 5, Uphold my steps in your paths that my footsteps may not slip. You can almost see it on a poster and remember it a lot more. There's a lot of Bible verses, but that's a good one uh, for us to remember. Okay, well, the next little section is, Please hold your servant close, O Lord. So the word is close. So in addition to... Uh, our first point there uh, about prayer. Hear your servant's prayer, O Lord. Here's please your, hold, your servant close, O Lord. So the fill in the blank is close for verses 7 and 8. You may remember what I've told you about the word translated loving kindness in verse 7 there. It's one of those key concepts in the wisdom books, along with the word for truth and the concept of the fear of God. They occur other places in the Old Testament, but they really come into uh, uh, display in the wisdom literature. So I think, it, did I give you that in your notes, the word translated loving kindness? You got it there? Good. Okay. It's the word kesed. Again, in my mind, one of the top 10 words in all the Bible. It appears 239 times in the Hebrew Old Testament, 140 in these poetic books, many of them in the Psalms. And its companion word for truth is ametz, which occurs 126 times, 49 times in poetic books. So in Proverbs 3.3, when it says, don't let kesed and emets forsake you, bind them around your neck, right? So first of all, consider God's grace, God's faithful love, His steadfast love, His mercy, His loving kindness. Consider it and truth like a, a necklace for you, something that is so part of you that you're just wearing it there. And then, of course, you want it to come out in your words and your actions, too. Uh, I think that when, John's begins his, when John begins his gospel in John 1, what does he say about Jesus? That he was full of two things. He was full of what in John 1? What's that? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. I think John is in part remembering, uh, you know, how important these concepts were of uh, kesed and emetz. Grace and truth. God's faithful love, His, His covenant love. It's all in there, that concept of God's covenant love toward Israel. And uh, Jesus was the perfect embodiment of God's faithful love and truth. And uh, so we want to be people of both. Uh, we can't be 100% of both like Jesus was, but we can try using Him as our model. But um, David says, Lord, show me your cassette in this situation in verse 7. Show your mar marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. Show that you're keeping your vows to your people through this situation. And uh, verse 8 gets even better. Keep me as the apple or little man in your eye. That implies closeness, doesn't it? Along with the concept of being hidden under the shadow of God's wings. You can see the thunderclap or a predator just uh, beyond, and the mother hen raising up the wing, and the chicks running underneath. Um, and I think that so many of the Psalms, when they talk about refuge, they're picturing this. And um, I get tickled when I think, you know, that uh, Israel had five, I think, cities of refuge. 
What, what, what happened at a city of refuge? Does anybody remember? You get to stay there until whatever, even a legal, legal problem could get taken care of, but you were... Yeah. Safe, you know. Yeah, it was like the whole country had a big game of tag. You know, uh, and you know, if you get to the base, they can't tag you out, right? Well, in this case, if there was some uh, question about whether your actions had led to the death of another, you could flee to the city of refuge. You'd get there, they'd let you in. And when the, per when the family members got there wanting to kill you for whatever happened with their uh, person, do vigilante justice on you, uh, you know, you, you could, you could uh, be safe in that place. You had refuge to go to. And what I find so amazing about that is, I mean, um, I mean, the Old Testament especially is just known for good common sense, you know, that there's a place you can go to. There's a place you can go to. But what's really neat is about David and his family's heritage of, um, you know, incorporating that language of refuge because um, when Ruth goes back to Bethlehem with Naomi, and says, your God will be my God. And then when Ruth says, we got to eat, so can I go out in the field? Naomi says, yeah, go out in the field. And, you know, she meets Boaz. And Boaz compliments Ruth not only for her caring for his kin, Naomi, but also for, you know, coming to the God of refuge, just like this, you know, a chick going under the wing like that. You know, you've come for, uh, you've come for uh, rescue. You've come for refuge under God's wings. And I think as they told that story generationally in David's family, he really liked that. Because then in the Psalms, what's he doing? God is our refuge and strength. God, keep your covenant love, your chesed, and, you know, hide me like the little man in your eye. I want to be so close to you. Uh, that I'm like that. I, I've come to you. I'm running to you. Like, you know, with all the stories we told of Boaz and uh, Ruth and all those great things that happened, you know. And so what had happened was refuge became more than a place you could go to. When David was on the run, he didn't have a place to go to. It became a person you could go to. And he visualized God like that. So that's really neat in here. Hold me close, Lord, in all the ways. When we're agitated, it's of little real help to us to verbally assassinate other people or to take matters in their own hands rationally. What often does help is a closer walk with Jesus, like the great hymn, just a closer walk with thee. Well, verses 9 through 12, it's a poignant look into David's problems. So in verses 9 through 12, what are some of the problems that David says he's experiencing? Pick out some of those rich words that are in there. Uh, yeah, I got the enemy surrounding me. I'm in a tight spot, like the movie said. Um, so he's surrounded. What else? Yeah, he felt oppressed, didn't he? The wicked are oppressing him. His enemies have surrounded him. Yeah, what else? That's, that got us through verse 9. Hey, George, you got a different translation. Don't you read verse 10. In, verse 10? Yeah. They have closed their unfeeling hearts. Their mouth, they speak okay, here in the New King James, it, so whenever a word in the Bible is italicized, that means the word isn't there. They're giving you a word to try to help understand it. So they've closed up their fat. <laughs> and the New King James adds the word hearts, and you've got unhealing. They've got a fat heart. They're, they're unfeeling. With their mouths, they speak proudly. So um, you have that. Uh, so these, these enemies are saying, hey, we're doing great, and you're, you're going to get yours, David. This is time's come. You're going to fail. You know? So he's in a humble situation, and they're making fun of that. Well, what else are they like as the next couple verses unfold? What are they like compared to the animal kingdom? Yeah, a lion. Uh, what, what vivid uh, words there, right? In verse 11, they're circling. They've set their eyes. They're crouching down to the earth. Man, when I see my little Mowgli, the black cat we have, yeah, what a hunter, what a hunter. Every week kills multiple things. And sometimes you just look out the window and there he is, you know, and he's crouching, he's sneaking up on. And I've seen him catch a bird, you know, uh, jump up four feet and catch a bird, you know three or four feet, 
Um, and uh, this is with a bum leg and stuff, and it's not uncommon to see. He, he knocked a crow out of the air one day, and the dog finished the crow off, you know. And this is, a, this is a hunter cat, you know. So David pictures, like, these things he's seen in lion imagery. And now Gary and I went to Kenya, and he got to see lions there. And one thing that's very interesting about Israel is that it is along the Rift Valley that goes all the way down into Africa and to Kenya, too. In fact, uh, one of the reasons why Israel... Uh, this earthquake, they, they, they send great teams to help. And they do want to help. They do want to create goodwill with those Muslim nations around them that generally don't like them. In fact, some of them hate, hate them and don't think they should exist. But they're also getting ready because they know it's just a matter of time till we have our next big one. We're on a Rift Valley fault line, you know, just like others and stuff. But anyway, it's neat to think about how some of the, the, the imagery that... The Bible talks about some Kenyans may know better than we. And I think you may have heard me tell the story of how these Maasai warriors, to become a man, they've got to kill a lion, you know. So uh, you know they've studied lions before they go out to try to kill them, you know. And they know you've got to get them when they're pouncing. You've got to get them when they're pouncing. You've got, you got to act like you're the prey and they're coming. And you crouch down, and as they come in, you go up with your spear and they die on the spear, and then the other fellows help get the big lion off of you and finish them off because uh, uh, it's still a lion. <laughs> it's still a lion that's coming at you and stuff. So what bravery. But uh, in this case, David is the prey. <laughs> that li the, the, my enemies are like lions that want to tear their prey, like, and they're lurking in secret places to jump out and catch me in something. So I wonder if you've ever felt like that, these analogies that are in verses 9 through 12 under assault by others in your families, that can happen, those you thought were your friends, someone at school or work. Um, and sometimes we say, well, Danny, as you look through this, aren't you getting a little paranoid? And it's like, no, you've had situations like this, and I have too. And thank God there's a portion of the Scripture that honestly says when we feel like we're getting a raw deal somehow, and it's just not right how we're being treated. We're doing what's right, and others are you know, misinterpreting things and trying to get us and stuff like that. Thank God we can go to... Things like Psalm 17. So the more familiar we are with the Psalms, it gives voice to our own times of, God, I don't want to reach out. I don't want to, I don't want to be vindictive. I don't want to speak that way. I don't want to act that way. And so, Lord, won't you show up and help in this situation? And uh, many times he does. Many times he does. In fact, I, I can't, uh, I, I wish I'd kept a journal over the years. If you do, good for you. Uh, I've often had it recommended, never been able to do it. But I know I would be up to, Hundreds of times where I said, Lord, there's just a lot going on. I need your help in handling this situation. And then it happened. And he did, you know. So definitely something in our arsenal to pray and give it over to the Lord. But thank God for David's honesty because we have times we can relate. So here's where we come to understand that David's talking about godless people here who want to destroy the people of God. So we can relate it to conflicts we have with other Christians. But increasingly, we're going to be able to relate this to the world we live in. Um, that, uh, you know, so you're, you're in the world and you're working, you know, and you just, want to, you just want to have a photography business, you know. But you don't want to take photos for a gay wedding because you don't want to say you're supporting that. And so you recommend another photographer and they say, no, we're going to sue you because you won't do it. And people in Colorado have had that happen. Or maybe it's a cake maker or something. And there is a difference between having a restaurant and you don't mind serving anybody and something where you're using your talents and gifts to say something's okay that you don't believe is okay. And in almost all of these situations uh, that we've seen from Washington State and football coaches and in almost all the situations, the uh, Christian had been thoughtful in advance about, you know, what they would do if that situation came up and it didn't matter, you know. So uh, like the cake maker who said, well, listen, I've got to deal with the guy down the road. He'll make your cake. And they're like, no, you've got to make the cake. It's like, well, you know, I, I, you know he'll, he'll do it. No, no it's got to be you. And uh, obviously they were looking to get that man. And we've had many people almost lose everything um, as they've gone through lawyer's fees and other things uh, in type, those type situations. And it's very sad. Um, so there are godless people out there that want to destroy the people of God. They want every church to change, every preacher to be silenced, you know. And that's the world we live in now, you know. And so there are many hoping for the destruction of churches like ours, churches that believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, 
and hold fast to biblical teaching on sin rather than compromising to accommodate the spirit, spirit of the age. And it's just going to increase. I mean, goodness, even since the turn of the year, uh, the Pope has made very clear words about accepting uh, sin as okay. Uh, you know, wishy-washy language. The Church of England has done the same. Uh, and of course, you know, from this past year, ripping apart United Methodist churches and stuff. So it's just part of what we're facing. So David's calling himself and us to remember that what looks like success now for the godless won't look like success after Judgment Day. And we just have to keep that in mind. Uh, Randy Alcorn, who's an exceptional writer, Anybody here ever read any Randy Alcorn stuff? Yeah, okay, good. Randy Alcorn, like C.S. Lewis, is one of the very few uh, writers that write both compelling fiction and nonfiction. So they've done, you know, C.S. Lewis did works that blessed the body of Christ that were nonfiction, and they wrote great stories like the Chronicles of Narnia and the Christian science fiction uh, trilogy that he did that's so good. Um, Randy Alcorn wrote a great book about heaven that incorporated all that the scripture says about future life in heaven and later the new earth. But he also wrote a book called Safely Home that beautifully told a story of a Chinese martyr uh, and an American that knew the fella and generations in heaven seeing and praying about things on earth. Just really cool. But um, so why did I bring that up? Well, I brought it up because um, in those writings, you know, um, C.S. Lewis did a good job writing about it and Randy Alcorn both about the fact that uh, Randy Alcorn especially says, you know, a lot of people live for the point instead of the line. And so he imagined the years between our birth and death here on earth as being like a point in time. It's just a shadow, it, vapor, just here and gone, right? But eternity is like a line with an arrow that just keeps on going that way. So there's a point of time that we're in now, and there's a forever to come. And so many of us live, make all decisions based on the fact that that point is all there is, rather than the fact that there truly is eternity, that there truly is a, uh, you know, a reward to come. And so I love, I love, I love how this psalm ends. And I'll be honest with you, I've seen a lot of great verses you can use to talk about God rewarding us one day and reversal of fortunes one day. But man, uh, what comes here at the end goes right along with that, verses 13 to 15. So, so don't forget these verses and where you found them, Psalm 17. So reverse our fortunes, O Lord, verses 13 through 15. Look what he says. Arise, O Lord. Confront the wicked, cast them down, deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. Verse 14, with your hand from men, O Lord, from men of this world who have their portion in this life and whose belly it you fill with your hidden treasure. So verse 13 and 14 go together. They are satisfied with children. They leave the rest of their possession for their babes. And then this verse 15, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. And I hope you, you can process how great those verses are because um, it's such an ironic statement uh, filled with truth David makes. From men who have their portion in this life whose belly you have hidden with your treasure. So do they really have God's treasure? No. <laughs> they think they've got treasure. They think they're winning while all the godly saints who are suffering and don't have a lot are, uh, are, um, are, are, are losers. Uh, because they're not making the most out of right now. They're delaying, uh, you know, like it says about in Hebrews 11, you know, Moses was looking forward to a future. He was looking, uh, he, he, he bore reproach uh, rather than get the delicacies and all those things in Egypt because he was looking forward. Abraham was looking forward to the city to come whose foundations are from God. So he left a big city. David was from a big city area. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm thinking about Abraham now. Sorry, Abraham. Uh, left uh, a big city type situation, a big walled city, and came all the way down to the promised land where, uh, you know, they had to build everything, you know, uh, uh, the, um, uh, and, and there was already cities there, and he's there uh, looking toward the future, but doesn't have any of those cities yet, you know. He had to um, be nomadic as he went during his days. Um, so this is the only heaven the wicked will ever know. That's basically, this is as good as it's going to get. This treasure is all, as good as it's going to get for the wicked. That's what David's saying there. 
The Caesars casinos of this world look like they're racking up treasure now. They fill themselves and their mouths with sinfully gained morsels now. They have fat stomachs because of it. They've got big pocketbooks and stuff. And they can throw it around to keep everybody in line, you know, and, and scare away any opposition and stuff like that. But according to verse 15, their treasure won't last beyond this lifetime. They can't take it with them. It will be left for their children as they go to judgment. So they thought, man, we're going to be able to use this forever. And then they die and somebody else has to decide what to do with it, you know. And sometimes, ironically, the children are like, well, I don't want to carry on dad's legacy. <laughs> and uh, they don't want anything to do with it. Um, turn to Ecclesiastes. Um, so... You may have seen this passage in Ecclesiastes. I like to point it out every once in a while <clears throat> because it's just so interesting. I think about Voltaire that said that, you know, within a generation the work of God will die out. And then I think his uh, house for a while was used by the Bible Society of that country to distribute Bibles. But what, look at what Ecclesiastes 2.26 says. For God gives wisdom and knowledge... And joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting, that he may give it to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. So you think about all these fortunes that have been made, you know, and God says, you know, one day I'm going to repurpose it all for God's work. That's probably why Jerry Falwell used to say, the devil's had it long enough. Let's put it to work for the kingdom. <laughs> so... Um, it reminds me of Jesus' words. Remember that story about him, the guy building bigger barns? Uh, Luke 12, 16 through 21. And then Jesus uh, caps off the story by saying that God will say to the man who just kept on building, building, building as if this world was all there is and never was rich toward God and toward being generous with sending um, you know, money that would be an investment in kingdom things. He said, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will these things be which you've provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, uh, you know, that you can lay up treasure for yourselves in heaven. So don't collect just here, but lay up. You, you know, Randy Alcorn said, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. These wicked enemies of David, are, it's all about now for them. And uh, this is as good as it's going to get, is what he says here in Psalm 17, 14. I remember, it reminds me of Jesus' parable, the rich man and Lazarus, right? The rich man and Lazarus. So in Luke 16, uh, they both die. Lazarus, the poor man, dies. Lazarus' name means God helps. Luke 16, 22 says, the rich man died and was buried. Lazarus also died and was escorted by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And immediately the fortune switch. Lazarus has had nothing on earth. The rich man had had so much. Sometimes he's called dives, dives, uh, because of a, oh, I forget why I'd have to research that one again. Something to do with how the King James presented the wording there. But um, so the rich man uh, all of a sudden is in torment, and Lazarus is already being comforted in the place of the dead, Sheol or Hades. Um, and this is before Jesus empties that holding place of all the redeemed who then are in heaven now. It's still the holding place for the dead. So uh, the dead wicked are still there waiting the final judgment. It says that uh, one day, Revelation 20 says that Sheol and Hades will be emptied and it'll be the great white throne judgment. And then there'll be no need for those things. It'll just be the lake of fire after that, the final destination of the, uh, those that didn't know the Lord. But uh, Lazarus is being comforted instead of physical torments in this life. The rich man who had it all but didn't know the Lord and didn't serve humanity, uh, you know, he had it in this life and he's already suffering and waiting final judgment. And it's interesting, in there, he says, Father Abraham, just send somebody back to witness to my kin. I, I, you know, I don't want them to come here, you know. And so when you think about that and uh, Jesus tells them the story, they won't listen. Abraham says, they won't listen. Well, yeah, they will. And he says, no, if they won't listen to what's already written and the truth that's already given, they won't respond even if somebody rises from the dead. And then Jesus did that. But, you know, I can't help but think about how that parable helps us understand Psalm 17 here, right? Because in these last verses, he's talking about a reversal of fortunes. 
Look at it again. The wicked, the wicked, verse 14, they've got a, they're filling this life and then they leave it to their children. But they haven't left to their children what really mattered. Right? Um, an example of following God and seeking God. They haven't set their kids up for eternal success. And I think that's some of what David's after there in verse 14. So David encourages himself that the godly man will be more than rewarded for any struggle in the days to come. Because look at verse 15. As for me, not like those that reject God, but as for me, someone who embraces God, I will see God your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Is he just talking about waking up in the morning? No, I think he's, I think he's, he's very poetically talking about the future after this life. Um, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Turn over to Psalm 37. So we can add Psalm 17, 15 to precious verses like the psalm that says, uh, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. The New Testament, Philippians 1, to, um, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Psalm 37 is another contrast passage. 10 and 11, For yet a little while and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for His place, but it shall be no more. Verse 11, But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. So there's a great reversal coming, you know. The ungodly, who this was the only heaven they ever knew, it'll only be hell to come later. For the godly, whatever struggles are in this life, um, the best is yet to come. Let's get Job, too. Job is before Psalms. Job 19. I like the fact that these words of Job are in the middle of the book of Job, kind of. When he's having these discussions with his friend, they're convinced that he's done something to deserve the tough life he has at this point. And uh, so they say, come on, Job, what'd you do? And he said, well, I'm a sinner, but I can't think of any sin that corresponds to me, God's hand being so heavy on me right now. And I wish I could talk to God about it. And that's kind of how it goes for 30 chapters, you know. And in the middle of that comes one of the great exclamations of the faith. They say Job goes back to the time of Abraham. So here's one of the oldest exclamations in the Scripture about belief in not only life after death, but being with God in a new body on a new earth one day. Look what it says. Oh, that my words, verse 23, Oh, that my words were written, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. Well, good news, Job. Somebody was writing it down. We got it. Verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. What's he saying? Same thing David's saying in Psalm 37. The righteous will inherit the land. There will be a day we're on a new body and a new earth. One of the great questions you have when you read the Bible from a Christian perspective is, where's heaven in the Old Testament? Well, you don't hear a lot about being with God in the current heaven, like is the temporary state for all the believers that have gone there. You hear about the final reality, where God brings us all the people of God back together again on a new earth, and we've got new bodies, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, to live on a new earth. And that's what Job's looking forward to. That's what David's looking forward to in Psalm 37. And indeed here, Psalm 17. Uh, how about that language, I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness? Turn to Daniel 12. I'm going to add one in here since we've got uh, a couple minutes and I've only got one other verse to share with you. But Daniel 12. Okay, this kind of goes forward all the way to the... <laughs> to the end of times. Um, Daniel 12, verse 1, At that time Michael the archangel shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time, talking about the great tribulation. At that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. So that's the uh, gathering of the saints of Israel um, when they have a mass conversion to Christ at the end of the tribulation time. 
and then goes forward to uh, the time of the resurrection for the final, uh, after, after the millennial reign of Christ comes the time of the um, uh, great white throne judgment and then forever on the new earth. Verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So pretty cool. Now, the end of verse 15, one more time, Psalm 17. As for me, I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Now, Paul said to believers, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So we do want to imitate Christ. We want to be like Him. And what's neat is the Bible guarantees that for people of faith. Let's compare Psalm 17, verse 15, to 1 John 3, 2 and 3. It says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. We shall be like Him. We shall see Him as He is. And look what it says to all of us who are believers. And everyone who has this hope in Jesus purifies himself just as God is pure. I got one too many things capitalized there, but everyone who has this hope in Jesus purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. So pretty cool to think about the great hope we have. That's why it's called the blessed hope, uh, which is pretty cool. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.